This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Grips. From comfort to durability to grip diameter options, check out Renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be busy talking about the Sepang Test. MotoGP bikes are back on track and uh, we've got a full house back in the Paddock Pass podcast. We've got David Emmett, editor of Motomatters.com. And David, you've just come straight off a flight from Sepang and straight on to the podcast. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, I got into Skipole this morning. Um, it was quite the contrast from 30 degrees out in Malaysia to um, frost on the fields uh, uh, through the train windows. So, yeah, it was a, a bit of a contrast, bit of a change. Adam Wheeler from On Track Off Road. Adam, you're uh, obviously not having gone to Sepang. You've had it easy over the course of the last few days. Good lie-ins all the way through and uh, then just wake up just to, to catch the times then at the end of the day. I love this fantasy you have of my lifestyle, Steve. Um, I didn't go to Sepang. <laughs> um, a couple of people asked me, but I was um, actually in Houston for the Supercross. And uh, yeah, it was a good trip. Just a quick one. But then jetting from one side of the world to the other wasn't particularly desirable. So it's going to be a relatively quiet February ahead. Um, we've got the Repsol Honda launch in Madrid which uh, for the likes of Neil and I means just a quick train journey from Barcelona over to the capital. So we're hoping to go to that one next. And um, aside from that, it's going to be pretty easy up until the, uh, the, the Portimao test, actually, which is only a fortnight before the first GP. Quite a risky move for the man living in Catalonia to call Madrid the capital. But uh, Neil, you wouldn't fall into an issue like that. And uh, obviously, the biggest challenge that you've had since uh, being on after the flag from the Sepang test was probably just having to deal with all of the Valentine's Day cards that all your followers (laughs) sent you. Yeah, well, first of all, Steve, I think you got the the people on the Paddock Pass podcast mixed up because you said to add that he was having a lie-in on each of the three days and then waking up just before the end. That was actually me. That was my tactic across the three days because Dave was on the ground so he could just send the audio through um, and yeah number of uh, Valentine's Day cards uh, well they've been let's say uh, very very limited um, arriving in the in the, the Barcelona flats so but delightful that we're spending Valentine's Day together I think it's very apt for all of us it is, yes. We're, we're the Lonely Hearts Club all stuck together to talk about MotoGP. But um, there is obviously a lot to cover all the way through the, the uh, Sepang test. Interestingly, for all of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, we have a, a Paddock Notes show, a 20-minute roundup of each day from the Sepang test. And then we do that all the way through the season. Um, each day that there's MotoGP bikes on track, we try and bring you a show like that just to make sure that everyone gets all the news right from the debriefs straight away that evening. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. David, we mentioned that you were our boots on the ground in Sepang. What was it like being back at a racetrack? It's obviously the winter is always a time to recharge, but it always feels that it's a little bit shorter once you get back on that first flight out. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the thing that a lot of people were saying was that it was a really long winter because uh, the last test was, what was it, just sort of the second week of, uh, the right at the start of the second week of November. Um, and this test was quite late, you know, the, 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 the 10th of, uh, the, the 10th of February, quite often it's the 1st of February or, you know, the, the 31st of January. Um, so yeah, though, I mean, it, it'd been quite a long, it, it basically been three months since, since we'd been on on track so yeah it, it was good to get back all of what i really noticed were all of the riders were looking really really fit i think they used the extra time to get into shape what about you neil the uh, extra time to get in shape that was that was clear to you and not adam as well yeah i mean can you not tell steve um from the shots from after the flag uh, obviously all that iron i've been pumping over the uh, the off season was uh, was very evident um or not uh, in my case um but yeah i mean i moved flats this day a year ago and i remember that was pretty much the day when preseason ended last year and we were pretty much jumping into round one quite soon after that so uh, yeah the fact that we've got now another month until the next preseason test the final one yeah it does uh does tell us that uh, this uh, off-season is uh, abnormally long. Yeah, and uh, obviously for for us on the podcast, we've been able to find a lot of content all the way through the winter to keep everyone entertained. But it's always good when bikes are back out on track. And Adam, 
just to to kick us off on the on track action from Sepang, just going to take five words on each manufacturer. So we're going to start off with you. What was your five word summary for Ducati? For Ducati, uh, goodness, uh, maybe with reference to everybody else, put sugar in the tanks. Um, <laughs> I think you know the. We can talk about it in more depth, but I think the kind of evolution rather than revolution cliche is firmly in place when it comes to the Des- Desmos Adichis and maybe one of the most interesting facts from the whole Italian uh, contingent is which rider is going to do a Bastianini in 2023. Uh, we've seen Luca Marini head both tests in terms of the timesheet so far. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's going to be slightly ominous again, I think, for MotoGP this year, Steve. Dave? Adam has failed the uh, five-word summary test horrendously, so we'll come to you next for your five words on KTM. Uh, KTM is still searching for acceleration grip, which is what they spent all of their time doing. The bike is better in a few things. Uh, It still needs a little bit of help turning, but really just they can't get out of the corner. Steve, I think your five-word concept is, uh, is not hitting home. I think um, it's it's impossible for four people with verbal diarrhea just to stick to five (laughs) words. It's quite possible, but obviously I did think that for David it would be a struggle. Anyone that's read his 15,000 word roundups from each day of a Grand Prix weekend will know that David Emmett doesn't stick to a word count. Neil Morrison, on the other hand, the esteemed journalist amongst us, the man that writes for what seems like every publication in the world. (laughs) Neil, can you stick to five words on Yamaha. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that you asked us to do this about one minute before we started recording uh, has made this quite a, a difficult task, Steve. But for Yamaha, I would say probably more questions than answers from uh, Sepang. Um, just because, I mean, it was looking like a, a pretty solid test at the end of day two. It was probably looking like a pretty solid test up until... Uh, the final two hours of day three. Um, but, um, you know, it can never really be straightforward with Yamaha. There always has to be some kind of drama, you feel, some kind of minor crisis or, or fire that they're having to extinguish. And, um, yeah, the fact that uh, Fabio and Franco Morbidelli really tried to put everything into a late um, qualifying run uh, towards the end of day three and felt absolutely nothing from their bikes, couldn't really get a tune out to them at all, didn't really have any sort of idea what was going on. Um, that was definitely a big worry, a big, big worry with just a month to go until the next preseason test. That wasn't five words either. He's a commentator and he's Irish. I mean, what chance have we got? Probably more questions than answers. That's five words. It was, it was a really good five words initially, and then you just kept talking. But Adam, right, Adam, I'm coming back to you for Aprilia. What about your five words on Aprilia? Foreplay makes it all better. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty good, actually. That's a, that's a pretty good summary. That, that, that's a headline well. writer if ever I noticed it so uh, check out ontrackoffroad.com for uh, surely uh, quite a lot of innuendo all the way through the MotoGP season but uh, you mentioned there about the, the foreplay obviously uh, four Aprilia's on the grid next year it's going to be really interesting to see how that fa- how that plays out for the RNF team Oliveira looked very good in this test Raul Fernandez had a, a good step made as well we're not being smug, Steve, but I did identify uh, Maverick Vinales at the start of last season as potentially one of the surprises of the year. And I don't think we would have... I mean, he had a purple patch, we know, in the middle of the season before the whole Aprilia project seemed to drop off a cliff in the last phase of the season. But, you know, I, I just, I'm just i curious to see what will happen with Dave's verdict on Raul Fernandez, um, you know, because he's been the most vocal of, when it comes to a judgment. I think we've all been harboring um, and that he was uh, an amazing, amazing prospect in Moda 2, but could be quite underwhelming in the premier class. Uh, he showed a bit more potential in Sepang, of course, but then we're not. Can I just get the cliche out of the way earlier in the podcast that we can't read too much into that first test? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, in terms of uh, Raul Fernandez, because yes, I've been extremely critical of uh, of Raul Fernandez just because he was been absolutely terrible. Um, but this, I mean, just also talking to the team, the, the team is saying he's so much 
happier. He's so much nicer. Because we heard before, like when he was in KTM, like nobody wanted to have anything to do with him just because he was just just very unpleasant to be around. He's really relaxed. Um, uh, he's really friendly. He's changed. Uh, I interviewed Wilco Zielenberg um, in uh, in Sepang, and Wilco was saying, you know, look, he was in a situation where he was completely unhappy. He didn't want to be in the team, didn't want to be on that bike, didn't want that crew chief, uh, had no faith in his situation. It was really difficult. And Raul said, uh, I think maybe either on the Thursday or the Friday, uh, look, you have to have confidence in your team. Your t- you have to be able to believe that your team uh, are supporting you. And he didn't feel that at all in KTM, and he feels that there. And, and genuinely, like I don't, I'm not sure he's going to be the revelation that he was in Moto2, um, but, but he should have a much, much better year this year. Dave, do you feel that as a team we support you enough on the Paddock Class podcast? No, I no, of course not. Um, I think you, I think you, I think you just exploit me for my good looks. Yeah, it must be that. Anyway, Dave, five words <laughs> to uh, to sum up Honda, and the, Honda is probably the the one that we could talk about the most, given uh, given how the last couple of years have gone. But five words on Honda. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I actually did two versions of Honda. Um, right, uh, uh, starting completely from scratch again. Um, do you yeah. want me to explain that? No, that's good. Again, it's it's a bit like Neil's more questioning than answers. It doesn't really need to be explained too much. We are going to talk quite a bit about Honda. We're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast, though. And when we come back, we'll look at each manufacturer in a little bit more detail from the Sepang test. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Class podcast. We're going to start talking about the manufacturers from each of the uh, each of the MotoGP manufacturers from the Sepang test. Neil, obviously we saw Ducati dominate this test. We saw seven Ducatis inside the top nine and uh, each day they looked really impressive. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't come to me to ask for my five words on Ducati, Steve, because all I could think of was taking the piss and that's only three words. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Ducati it was, are taking the piss. <laughs> taking, the taking the piss a lot. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Thank you. We have five words finally for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty much the, the test from the heavens for, for Ducati because not just were the guys on the 23. Uh, GP23 is looking very strong, making very positive noises, fast, not just in terms of rhythm, but in terms of outright lap time. Um, they had uh, just ridiculous backup from the other satellite uh, teams running GP22s. And um, I mean, you mentioned there, Steve, that seven of uh, the eight Ducatis on the grid were inside the top nine. Um, you know, Johan Zarco had a pretty subdued test, but we know that Zarco on his day is quality. I mean, there's no reason really to think that all eight Ducatis can't at one point fight for the podium or maybe regularly uh, fight for the podium or at least, you know, five of them or six of them do that. Um, there is that ridiculous strength and depth that we saw last year. And I think the end of day three will have really worried the other manufacturers just because they retain that stunning ability to set one-off fast lap times, which other certain other manufacturers were really struggling with. Only Aprilia could get really among them with Alessio Spargo and Maverick Vinales. Um, and that bodes well for Ducati. Just, you know, we know this year qualifying is going to be more important forever because it, it counts for two races rather than just one. And if Ducati start locking out the grid again, I mean, it's going to fare or bode very, very well for the likes of Bagnaia, Bastianini and Martin. Yeah, everybody was saying that the qualifying is or the ability to set a fast lap is absolutely crucial because it does count twice. So you're going to be out, you're going to have to uh, set a fast lap on Friday afternoon. Because, and again, you've only got Friday to set your to set your fast lap on, uh, and then you've got to be able to set a fast lap uh, in qualifying because qualifying uh, sets the sprint race and it sets the 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 the, the feature race. But then, Dave, I think Luca Marini was pretty uh, interesting as usual um, when he was talking about race strategy for this year in particular because 
he was mentioning yeah qualifying one lap speed is going to be you know as we know uh, critical as it always is but then when it comes to the sprint races he was talking about how riders would be able to go 100% in every single corner whereas compared to a 20 25 lap grand prix race on a sunday he was saying that you know you make your start you battle for three or four laps then you kind of find your position which riders know from their race pace from you know fp3 fp4 and then it's about looking after the rear tire and seeing what happens later in the race so there's the, the there's kind of phases of the weekend the riders are going to have to go through in a much more frenetic kind of way. That one lap speed, you know, the all out balls out approach on the Saturday, as well as the traditional Grand Prix race on the Sunday. Uh, so I, I think it's, while we talk about the importance of the one lap on, on Friday, um, you know, I think also or for qualification, whenever it is, I haven't even got my head around the new schedule yet. Uh, it's also going to have to be those differing approaches on the Saturday and the Sunday, considering, of course, that both carry points. I think the big thing here, looking at Ducati's performance at Tepang, was they really learned from their mistakes of a year ago. Obviously, 2022 ended up as a, a fantastic year for them, but it started pretty disastrously for the factory guys or the guys on the GP22 at that time. We know that Pekka Bagnaia's early struggles were well documented, and that basically stemmed from a whole host of changes being made to his bike at Tepang. And it wasn't really... I think um, it was really, what, FP3 or FP4 in Qatar at the first race where they actually stopped testing. They, they started working towards setting the bike up for the race. And that just kind of threw Banyaya's head away. He said, you know, quite famously that he's a, he's a race rider, not a test rider. And you could see that obviously has filtered through finally and Ducati understood that, okay, let's just make him test kind of small things and similar things at the time. It didn't seem that he was being asked to try all this different stuff um, and uh, I think he left the final day on Sunday saying that the potential well basically the GP23 is already kind of at the level of the GP22 with a lot higher ceiling um, you know and again that's just you compare that to other manufacturers and it's just night and day yeah the thing that was most impressive about Ducati is how organized and structured their uh, their test program was um Pekka was you know Banyai was mostly focused on the engine uh, they got a lot of work done on the engine and that is pretty much ready to go they still need setting up you know uh, engine braking torque maps all that sort of thing um but they're already in a very good position uh, he's also sort of he has one aero package that he's happy with with um they're going to test again at, at portimao also the, they said that a lot of the riders said like portimao because of the way it's up and down and very blustery and stuff it's a good place to test aerodynamics uh and Ea bastianini uh jorge martin they were focusing much more on uh on aerodynamics they were using the 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 other air pa uh, the other aero package so it it looks like the Ducati, I mean, you said it exactly right, Neil. Like they learned from from their mistakes in in, in twenty two, they they organized their program, they structured it, they set it out, uh, they followed it, and that's given them such an enormous uh, advantage at the start of the season. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the things I'm really interested to see is how the Grassini Ducatis do this year, because Neil, that seems to be one of the big storylines as well. Digia looked like he made a good step forward. He was saying that working with his new crew chief was really helping. Alex Marquez seemed to spend the whole test subtly saying why the Honda was really bad. So uh, <laughs> those two riders looked like they're primed to make a big step forward. Like it's it's always easy to forget. But Alex Marquez is a, a Moto3 and a Moto2 world champion. And now he's got a bike that should allow him to show a lot more of that in the Premier class. Yeah. One of the quotes I think I liked the most from the test was Alex Marquez talking about when you were on the Honda and you uh, put it into the corner, you didn't know if you were going to fly or not. And he said, basically, the Ducati <laughs> just gives you like such a fantastic amount of feedback. Um, he said you feel comfortable, but you also know really where the limit is. And he felt that that is one of the reasons why so many different riders with so many different riding or such a variety of riding styles are able to kind of get the absolute maximum out of it uh, in sort of qualifying trim. Um, just because it does give you warnings. It does tell you where... Um, you know where that limit is um you know i don't think 
Alex Marquez was or did Gian Antonio were doing anything like absolutely unreal, but they just look really, really solid. Um, did Gian Antonio big step up this year? It seems um, working with Frankie Carcetti, world championship winning crew chief for, from 2020. Obviously, that's made a massive difference for him. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be surprised to see either guy um, fighting for the podium in the first couple of races. Yeah, there are interesting parallels between um, uh, uh, Digia and Raul Fernandez in that they're both with you know crew chiefs that they that, that they trust. Uh, uh, Antonio was basically saying like he learned more in these four days of testing with Frankie Carcetti than he did in his for, in, entire first year uh, in MotoGP, and he just looked he looked he just looked really really strong. That that relationship, that crew chief rider relationship, is I, I mean like I cannot get over and I cannot ex, you know sufficiently explain just how crucial it is just how key it is if that doesn't work then you know you're lost I think it's interesting as well that um, you know the worst any Ducati rider has is going to be the GP22 uh, which is all probably you know the most uh, the, the championship winning version of the because this was another thing that uh, you know Luca Marini was saying like the bike he has now he was on the GP22 last year as well but the GP22 he was on was the GP22 from the beginning of the year uh, and now he's on the GP22 from the end of the year and uh, well just look what Pecco Benyai did on the end of the uh, on that bike at the end of the year it's a very 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 good bike well that's why marini was already up to speed dave and i think you know it makes the whole like group of ducati riders even more competitive i mean i think uh, marini did add something on at the end when he was talking to the media by saying he hopes that the ducati factory guys the guys on the latest spec of the gp23 won't find anything <laughs> significantly better um, than what they've got <laughs> because that will mean a step ahead again and uh, you know from pekka bagnaya's work at the test uh, it was revealing that in day three right at the end uh, he said he made a big step, uh, something to do with engine engine delivery. Um, the way the power was being laid down onto the track at Sepang um, allowed him to be extremely positive at the end. And I think, you know, Bagnaia is looking in, in fantastic shape for, you know, getting right out of the gate into a championship defense. Just one other thing that I think is working really well in Ducati's favor is that, you know, Dave mentioned how the organization was properly fine-tuned and working so well um they've got just one rider out of the eight that is new to ducati which is alex marquez and i think they've only yeah. got one other rider which is switch teams which is an bastinini who's going from obviously grassini to the factory team the rest are all pretty much where they were so it's not like you know even bastinini it's not like he's having to make massive adaptations uh, through this preseason from you know a, a very different bike alex marquez is but um you know the rest the seven other riders they're kind of building already from a, a position of strength which is what ducati is doing as a whole yeah great strength and depth for the riders great organization behind the scenes and um, dave this brings us nicely to your starting from scratch all over again at honda because Honda, they are trying to put a bit more depth in the rider lineup. Obviously, bringing in Mir and Rins from Suzuki last year is going to help that. But it's the behind-the-scenes stuff that Honda are making the big step forward with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what we heard from a lot of people. Uh, Ken Kawauchi has come from Suzuki. Um, he has taken over, and he's got a much more structured and methodical approach to testing than uh, uh, Takeo Yokoyama, who, who he replaces. Uh, Takeo has gone back to uh, Japan. He's working in Japan with the engineers. Um, uh, it, it, I mean, I, I cannot emphasize just how deeply they've gone back to basics. Uh, so, for example, they sent Mark Marquez out on the bike without any wings because uh, Kawauchi wants to know what the bike, you know, what the base behavior of the bike is without any aerodynamics. Uh, but also, at one point, Mark had a uh, had a bike in his garage with um, what looked like a swing arm from 2017, um, uh, maybe an airbox from 2009, 19 uh, it had uh, a, you know a, a fairing the wings from 2019 really going i mean completely 
really going back to basics, really going back to sort of uh, the way that the bike was to try to understand, uh, to try to set a direction uh, for, for, for the future. So it, all of the riders said, like, the, 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 way that the, the way that they were working was very, very structured. I think both Alex Rins and Joel Mir, they actually did better than I, than I thought. I mean, you know, they're not sort of setting the world on fire, but they were both... They, when they were said they were quite positive, they weren't obviously lying like we've seen in the past. Um, I think there's potential there. I mean, there were four versions of the RCV for Marquez to test, Dave. And the two big questions that arise for me is, do Honda, with all of their resources, have enough testing team emphasis? I mean, they have Stefan Bradl running laps, but the f I think Marquez was actually quite bemused when he was being asked to do wingless tests. Um, you know, you surely uh, when you have a rider um, now finally fit, fully fit again, uh, you know, you need to be maybe more productive when you've got that, a rider of that caliber on track. The second thing as well, I, I just wonder whether Honda have shifted their policy finally of developing more for multiple riders than thinking, right, we need the bike for Marquez and then everybody else can make do. I think that, I mean, it, you, obviously you have to make sure that Mar Marquez has the bike that he wants because he's, he's, uh, he is the rider who is going to win championships for you. Um, I mean, you said four bikes. They actually had three new bikes plus the 2022 bike uh, uh, as a reference. Um, by the end of the test, both Juan Mir and, uh, and Mark Marquez had settled on a bike that they wanted to run. Uh, so they they both chose the same frame, uh, the, the, the same bike. So it, it felt like they were going. But I think this is... It, I mean, like Honda has lost its way over the past sort of maybe three, four, uh, three or four years. And uh, the reason for going back so far is because it's set. It was also interesting that Mark was not, I mean, he was, as you say, bemused, um, but he was also encouraged by the way that they were working. Yeah. Um, but again, you have to think like compare that to what uh, Ducati and Aprilia are doing. If if Honda are going back as far as testing the bike with no wings to try and understand what behavior is like in that situation, I mean, you have the impression that they're kind of starting from from zero. And they obviously had the, the huge wake-up call at Valencia where I think Mark made it very, very clear to the engineers that were present and to the top bosses that were present that that effort wasn't good enough. And... You know, the aside from that experimental bike that you mentioned, Dave, the other two bikes that that he had, the kind of twenty three bikes, were by all accounts okay. They, they sounded like there was an improved engine, which had more horsepower, better top speed, but it didn't seem that they were. There was one area anywhere that had kind of improved drastically. It was sort of similar things, similar feelings, and and, and very minor improvements. Adam, just about Mark in general as well, with them, like Neil says, basically going back to, to square one with the bike, taking the arrow off, trying to figure it out. You've got Mark, the greatest rider we've ever seen, coming close to the end of his contract. This is the year where they really need to be able to show that they can deserve to keep Mark because we see it time and time again where riders make their announcements for moves a year before they actually move. So a lot of the time at the Sepang test, we see rider announcements. And, um, you know, Mark's going to be close to that point now where unless Honda really make that step forward, he has to start looking elsewhere. Yeah, uh, we've talked about this before on the pod, Steve. I mean, it's, it's a good point. Where could Mark theoretically go if he leaves Honda? Um, you know, for the the size of his wage demands, his profile, um, you know, what else he feels he has to achieve in the sport? I mean, would he want to be a development rider, sort of the Vizioso style? I'm, I'm not sure. But Dave, like he mentioned on our notes um, package shows from Sepang, um, Honda essentially could be working a year ahead. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised... Uh, if they wanted to throw 2023 into the bin and just said to the riders, crack on, we'll develop as we go. We promise that we're going to have a new concept in 2024. But I think the most dispiriting thing of all for the likes of, say, Alex Rins or Joan Mears, that Paulo Spargaro spent, you know, a better part of what, 18 months, very disillusioned that, um, or at the inflexibility of Honda to be able to produce solutions for the motorcycle to enable him to be more competitive. Uh, you really hope they don't end up in that funk again. Um, and, you know, Mark Marcus is the sole hope. Uh, and how much, how long is, is Mark's patience going to last? That's, that's one of the big questions I think we'll see in, in the first six months of this year. 
Yeah, I think that is absolutely key. Uh, they are working. They, you're right. They are working for 2024. They're not going to solve the problems with the bike this year. Uh, does Mark have a, a, enough patience? Is he prepared to wait for 2024? Um, and who could he sign with? He could sign with whoever he likes because, you know, I mean, who's going to turn down a, who's going to turn down a championship? I think he gets to pick and choose. Um, put him on a Ducati and like it would be embarrassing. I think it's worth mentioning that it's not all doom and gloom. Technically, it seems like it is, and there's no doubt that they're a long way off. But I think probably the the, the most important thing uh, from Honda's point of view was that Mark was just in such good physical shape. I think he said aside from the end of day three on Sunday, when he was feeling a little fatigued, uh, especially in his right arm, um, you know, his feeling on the bike was good. His feeling with himself was good. I think it's the first preseason since 2017-18 that he hasn't been recovering from major surgery or a kind of career-threatening injury. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that I'm not saying that Mark can win a championship on a bike that is clearly so inferior to its rivals, but I still think he can. he can play a role. He can be... He can get in their faces and he can win races for sure at certain tracks. I think if he's at his best, which it kind of seems he is, he's approaching, I think that's that's kind of more valuable than, than any sort of technical advancement. I think the uh, uh, the worst news for Honda was that what Mark Marquez said was um, uh, the best thing about the test was that he felt really good. Well, also, I think when it comes to Mark, you have to think <clears throat> what happens when he goes down the road. Uh, you're talking about a rider who's had two serious concussions. Um, his right arm we know all about. If he's wrestling the Honda from day one, then it's uh, really going to be an uphill task. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, Dad, because it is going to come down to what the rider feels through the course of the season. And I think that's where you have a, a good comparison to some of the other manufacturers out there. Yamaha, there's only two Yamahas on the grid. But it does look like they've made a significant step forward, uh, Neil. They've made a big step with their top speed at Sepang, at least. And um, obviously, their single lap pace on the final day wasn't anything to write home about. But that's probably nothing to really read too much into at this stage, would you say? I don't know. Yeah, I would say there's there's definite worries, definite definite concerns about the uh, about the top speed thing, just because qualifying is so crucial as we've already mentioned on the uh, on the show uh, today. Um, I think you know this was this was kind of a new experience for someone like Fabio Quartararo. I think what well, it's his fifth year in MotoGP, but he's never had a test like this where he's had to essentially be a test rider for you know, two and a half days uh, where he's had to just work through back to back in different engines, different aero packages. Um, and, you know, Yamaha, when they come to preseason, maybe there'll be a new chassis, there'll be a new swing arm. There might be some little new fairing parts, but really the the kind of fundamentals that they were testing were, 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 were quite big. Um, so you have to say that Fabio's probably a bit unproven in that regard, you know, developing a bike and, and kind of honing it and making it kind of different to what it was before, improving it from what it was before. Um, but yeah, there, there was definite positives there. The top speed is good. I think he was third fastest through the speed traps on day two. Um, he said he that speed was set when he was riding alone. Um, maybe he's not going to be out dragging Ducatis on the street, but he's certainly not going to be out dragged like he was last year and the year before that. So that's definitely a good thing. Um, you know, it, it seems that Yamaha certainly have come prepared you know, the, the fact that they brought so many test items, this is something that we haven't seen from Yamaha in quite some time. Um, so th there's certainly the the initiative there, the, the kind of the right attitude. But I think that final day, the end of final day, will will, will be a concern and will we'll sort of be playing on Fabio and, and Franco's minds for the next month. Um, because what Fabio was saying was that he felt like he was riding in low 1-minute 58s or you know, high woman at 57s on that, that those qualifying runs. Said he felt like, you know, he was riding really, really quick, but then he saw he was basically a second and a half slower when he looked at the timing screens. And it said it wasn't as if he was like losing the front everywhere or the, the rear was coming round. It's just the speed wasn't there. Yeah, so he was confused. He didn't know what was going on. And that, I think, is something that might be that might be of a concern. Yeah, I guess the, the thing for me is I don't really expect whenever we go to round one or we go all the way through the season that you're going to be seeing Fabio 
on the sixth row, seventh row of the grid. So I think that the, a lot of the progress they made at Sepang will leave them in, in pretty good standing. But there is obviously work to be done. Adam, what about you? Yeah, I, Steve, I think it's a little worrying that Fabio doesn't really know what's going on with the bike. I think, but then of course it is the first test. I mean, he's got another month now. Yamaha have another month to refine things and give him something better to look forward to in Portimao. Uh, we saw how competitive he was last year on, you know, the slowest bike on the grid. But I think one crucial aspect is Franco Morbidelli because not only will Franco have questions of his own for Yamaha, but I think there'll be a lot of people be looking at Morbidelli wondering, you know, what can you do? Can you adapt to this package or not? Because Quattararo hasn't got a hope, um, you know, compared to the rest of the grid, if he doesn't at least have a, a wingman, a Yamaha, a fellow Yamaha rider there in the top 10, taking points away from some of his rivals, I think it'll be an extremely tall order to, to predict you know, Quattararo for any championship purely because of the odds that he faces. So it's, um, I think Morbidelli is uh, someone else who maybe could show um, or, you know, reveal a little bit more how Yamaha are progressing with their modifications on, on the M1. No, Franco is fighting for his future. There's no doubt about that. And his future is whether or not he can stay on the MotoGP grid because the last two years he hasn't shown enough to warrant really being kept on by anyone at this stage so he's probably the rider under the most pressure in that way but also the other side of that is over the last two years we haven't really seen anything to make you think that he would be able to put himself into a position to take many points off a championship rival of Fabio so I think Fabio is going to be fighting on his own yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting obviously you know just two Yamahas this year that's certainly not ideal it's a, a real contrast to the position that Ducati find themselves in um, I don't know I just like Dave you're obviously there um, you know could you sense a w w was there a hint of, of panic um, once the, the test had closed from Yamaha, Yamaha people that you you saw around or that you spoke to yeah, no, they didn't really, there wasn't a sense of panic, but there was a, a sense of concern that they couldn't do a fast lap. Like, I mean, as we've said before uh, already on this podcast, qualifying is going to be absolutely crucial. Um, everyone was uh, quite pleased with the speed that the Yamaha had. Um, and Franco Morbidelli seemed to have made a step. You know, he said that he'd spent the winter working on himself, you know, like trying to be more aggressive. Um, still a bit early to say whether that's going to be enough, but at least he's a little bit closer to uh, Quattararo uh, than he was last year. Um, but, it, I mean, it, you know, it does look like uh, uh, Jorge Martini is going to be Fabio Quattararo's teammate next year. Um, the is there panic? I don't know if if there's panic. What I do think is that there is going to be they they've got some real concerns about what's going to uh, uh, about qualifying. They still have a lot of stuff to test at um, uh, at Portimao. The one interesting thing that um, Quartararo said was that he felt like this was the first real test that, he, that he'd ever had uh, on a Yamaha. Of course, you know, in part that's because he spent the first two years on the satellite uh, uh, as, a, as a satellite rider. Um, but Yamaha bought, uh, bought so many um, so many passed the test that at the end of the first day um, it was almost like his head was completely sort of just full of all of the stuff that he'd, uh, that he'd had to be testing so um, I think it, it's a bit difficult to read where Yamaha are there's lots of very positive signs but there's also some really basic stuff which they're not doing yet obviously you mentioned there David about Yamaha having two bikes on the grid and uh, that's what we've seen Aprilia in the last few years having to to wade through the MotoGP season with. Now they've got four bikes on the grid. And the ORNF Aprilia team, that was one of the big talking points all the way through the test and uh, to see how Miguel Oliveira and Raul Fernandez were going to fare. And both riders looked like they, they made a good step. I thought uh, Oliveira in particular looked really good at different times. But what was your thoughts just looking into that pit box as you were walking up and down pit lane? I mean, uh, look, it's a great, it's, it's genuinely a very, very good team. It's very well organized. They've got good mechanics. The, the teams work well together. Um, uh, Wilco Zielenberg and Torleif Hartelman are really good with the riders. They're fantastic at, at, at organizing and managing the riders. They give the riders what they need to be fast. So everything is in place for them to succeed. Um, uh, Oliveira, uh, Alicia Spargaro said, I think on day two, maybe that after the first day, um, he'd been struggling. In, in the in the third sector and he looked at um, Oliveira's data and found that uh, th that uh 
or he'd looked at it and he'd sort of like figured some stuff out. He'd figured some stuff out about how to be faster, uh, how to be better on the bike. So I think that's really, really, uh, I think that's really uh, positive. The thing is, Oliveira and uh, Fernandez are going to be on 2022 bikes. They're not going to get any updates. So they weren't testing any parts. Um, they were just riding, uh, yeah, giving their, giving their feedback. Um, and the testing was happening in the, uh, in the, in the factory garage. Um, in terms of the factory bikes, the, the, it just seems like um, they didn't have anything massive. Uh, the new fairing they had helped the bike turn a little bit better. Um, everything was just a little bit better. But when everything is a little bit better, then that all adds up to a fairly decent step. I think overall, when it comes to Aprilia, just having another year on the project is going to count. Having race experience, uh, you know, I don't think they expected Alesh to be, you know, a championship contender. They were trying to bring Mabit Vignales up to speed. The motorcycle had a big step in 2022. So you d you're just going to see slight changes, I think. Uh, maybe the the biggest alterations will happen behind the scenes and how Apulia go racing and also how they manage that satellite team. So I think um, you know, a lot of the stuff going on with Apulia this year, Steve, you'll probably see a little bit um, away from the asphalt itself. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting to listen to Alesh at the end of the first day. He seemed almost disappointed by the fact that there were no major new items that uh, needed to be tested. Um, and I guess, you know, you look back at the previous three pre-seasons, I guess you could say, and Aprilia all had pretty major advancements or developments, uh, almost a, a new bike in, in, in many ways um, that they would bring to Sepang. So it was clear that Espargaro was jumping on something that was a massive step up. But um, I think by the end of the third day, he, he, he realized that, you know, they had done a good job because they had touched, I think, lots of aspects of the bike. He said it was a little narrower. So he said it's easier to change direction aggressively. This is something that Vinales was saying. The bike now feels a lot better suited to his riding style his way of riding um i think he was saying espargro was saying that the, the cooling is much better it was overheating a lot whenever we went to really hot racetracks last year um so they've made a big impress uh, Im improvement there i think the the engine had more revs and uh, they had made some improvements with the aero packages as well um and of course i think the final 2023 race engine won't be ready until the port test so that should bring a little improvement a little further improvement um and i think they'll have a new aero package there as well to test so yeah, we're not seeing the full package from Aprilia. It does look like it's positive. Um, is it time to be saying Maverick Vinales is going to step up and, and be a world champion? I don't know. I mean, to see him fast and, 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 and talking confidently in Sepang, I mean, it's hardly a new thing. It's pretty much every single year Vinales is fast at Sepang and we hear him uh, talking himself up for the year ahead. But yeah, you look at... You look at that factory team and the two guys that now know the bike, they know what it's like running up front. And uh, yeah, I think there's definitely reasons to be positive for Aprilia. I think it's hugely worrying that Maverick Vinales was only third fastest in a winter test. Aprilia's <laughs> in a disastrous situation. If, if history is anything to go by. That's why he's going to be world champion, Steve, because he's not top. He's doing things differently this time. He's not going to be the king of testing. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the one weakness of the bike at the moment was that the it, the engine, uh, it lacked a little bit of torque, <laughs> it lacked a little bit of, mi uh, of mid-range. Um, uh, Alay said uh, he'd been told by Romano Albassiano, don't worry about it, we've got engines uh, on the dyno back in Noale, which ha uh, have, you know, uh, like a fatter torque curve in, in that part of the, uh, uh, in that part of the rev range. So it should be better. Um, but yeah, it was, it was all, it was lots of little steps which add up to something big, I think. Obviously, the last manufacturer in MotoGP, KTM, They've been making quite a few small steps as well over the course of the winter. We did see that they've had a lot of change, Adam. And um, obviously, Brad Binder is their established rider. He's their expected team leader. But uh, when you look at KTM and Gas Gas for this season, it's got good depth across the field with all four riders. And this test was pretty positive for them, I thought. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Uh, I think KTM threw the book at Brad, uh, Brad Binder in particular. I think they gave him a lot of stuff to go through. Uh, and again, it shows a little bit how factories treat the Sepang test, that they'll have a lot of things. Even though KTM have 
Danny Pedrosa, they have Jonas Folger now and Mika Kalia going through test items. You know, they still need the verdict of people like Brad Binder and Jack Miller. So Binder had a lot to go through. He had to manage the tyres, obviously the, the rainy showery conditions um, in Sepang as well. So there was a lot to be done there. I don't think we can put that much into any of the lap times that the KTMs were showing. Uh, when it comes to the gas gas, having Paulo Spargaro and his experience there, also his knowledge of how the, the project evolved rapidly from 2018 uh, was a big win as well, especially compared to last year when you had two rookies, you know, coming into the class. So I don't, you know, I think people might file KTM and gas gas as down as maybe the disappointment of the test, but I still think there's a lot there and the next month would be crucial for that, for that outfit because they will have a couple of weeks to really like as brad said narrow down what they found what they crunched and then we've got two days in portugal the first one will be about you know sorting out the homologation sorting out the options for the for the base setting for the year and then sunday uh, the last one as well as maybe a time attack it will also be with a view towards setup for the grand prix itself so that's kind of the time scale. Um, and you know when it comes to jack miller i really think he's on a two-year deal we might not see the full potential of Jack Miller and the KTM until late into this season. Uh, he was still talking about setting the base levels of things like engine braking, traction control, um, everything else that you need to get a customized with a brand new bike. And Dave, as I think you said uh, numerous times at the end of last season, for a rider changing manufacturers and teams um, in MotoGP now, it is a big, big ask. Um, you know, when, you know, we have 20 riders at Sepang Test separated by one second to be able to jump into a whole new environment and with a whole new set of tools is a really, really big thing. Yeah, exactly. The interesting uh, uh, sort of example there is Paul Espargaro, who, you know, he jumped across to the Honda and then he jumped back and was uh, sort of like immediately fast again because he said, like, I've grown up with KTM. This is this is sort of like how I understand it. Um, it was also interesting to see that K that um, KTM were using uh, Paul Espargaro as a proper test rider. Uh, Paul was getting the new uh, was getting the the, the new aero, which uh, both Jack and Brad uh, tested. Um, they had a new engine with a different firing uh, with a with a different ignition sequence, um, it, which sounded different. It, it it really it really sounded different. So yeah, I think they they do still have a lot of work. Um, I found personally uh that ktm was the difficult the, the the most difficult factory to read like i how did they do i literally have no idea i i i mean they did a lot of work that is for sure uh whether that work was um uh good or bad is a complete mystery yeah i agree with you div i think if i was analyzing you know what the riders were saying each day um just from the you know the audio that you were oh, sending from the if track if you were analyzing it neil that's Sorry, your job when? you surely were <laughs> analyzing it okay, when he was I awake just... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, when I was, uh, Freudian slip there, when I was analyzing it, um, you know, I would say at the end of day two, things were things were looking good and, uh, you know, the guys would do lots of testing, so you, we couldn't really read too much into the lap times. But then the final day, you know, Paul 13th, Brad 14th, Miller 18th. Um, and I know Brad can be quite elusive sometimes in his debriefs when he, he clearly doesn't want to give too much information away. He certainly was on Sunday. Um, but yeah, I just, I couldn't, I listened back to his debrief a few times just to try and understand exactly what his feeling was. And, and yeah, it did seem that he felt, firstly, it seemed that he was just like, his head was swimming because he had been testing so much stuff over the three days that it was just, I think he said he didn't exit the, the pit lane once with the same bike. It was changes every single time he was going out. Um, so I think that was one thing. And then secondly, it, it, it did seem that he was a little a little downbeat. Um, perhaps he was expecting to have been in a better place by the end of day three. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I think with the other factories, I, I sort of know or we have a fair idea of, of where they are um, and how they may start the season. But I think with KTM, as Dave said, it's it's just a massive question mark. Yeah, I mean, like to go back to Honda, what was interesting was uh, Mark Marquez started off with three uh, with three bikes uh, in the in the gap. Well, four bikes, but I mean, the first one got uh, got, got uh, sort of uh, bunked off as as soon as Mark had sort of like got the feeling back. Um, he started off with uh, with uh, three days, uh, three bikes on the on the first day. Was down to two bikes on the second day, and by the end of the uh, by the end of the uh, the last day, you know, he had a um, uh, it, he had a clear choice 
choice of one bike. Like both riders had a clear choice of one bike. KTM, they were they like I didn't get a clear I didn't get a clear idea that they were narrowing choices down it just felt like they were going through lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff um and it didn't seem that they were doing it in a particularly um sort of they weren't searching for a direction or they you know they weren't creating a direction in the way that sort of other factories had been uh in the way that uh, you know, honda and, uh, and ducati had been they were just like grinding doing the work I don't. I don't think we can really judge um, any potential of KTM until perhaps the first part of the last day of the test in Portimao, Steve. Um, that's my feeling as well. I, I and also I don't think it, we should underestimate them. I mean, this is a factory that can bring a brand new chassis for Brad Binder at the final Grand Prix of the year. It's enough for, to allow him to, you know, be what slithers of a second away from from the win and you know posting a podium finish you know, to bookmark the season. He started the year on the podium and they finished it, um, you know, with a different configuration of a motorcycle. So KTM can react. Um, so I, I think, you know, like they said, it's it's somewhat cloudy, the picture around them at the moment. But um, when we get to Portimao, they really have to have made a, a definitive statement. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point to add. And that is one thing that definitely works in KTM's favor. I mean, we know that the Japanese factories can be notoriously slow to react to certain problems. And that's maybe one of the worries for Yamaha. Obviously, they've got this issue with the uh, with the bike and qualifying trim. Will they be able to react in a month um, before the Portimao test and essentially the start of the season? You do have confidence that KTM will be able to do that. Just um, to wrap up the Sepang test as well, usually over the course of a Grand Prix weekend, we have our winners and losers. But uh, as we all know, there are no winners in winter testing, especially David, whenever he has to spend eight hours slogging up and down pit lane for three days in a row. But what about surprises of the Sepang test? Adam, who was your big Sepang surprise? Uh, I'm struggling to think of this this one, Steve. Um, Not really a surprise at all, but I think the way things look for the Mooney VR46 racing team. They had two promising riders last season. I think they're going to have two incredibly strong riders this year. Uh, just with the technical package they have, the combination of Bezeki, that talent, and Marini's um, methodical approach to MotoGP, I think it's going to be uh, something pretty tasty. And Neil, what about you? Who was your surprise? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one, Steve. Um yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, in, in, in one respect, I was expecting um, the Suzuki boys at Honda to struggle more. But then it might sound strange to say that they, they weren't struggling when Alex Rins was 19th, Joanne Mir was 12th. But yeah, I was expecting them to be a bit further away, to be honest. Um, I know Mark was just doing the donkey work um, and wasn't really working on sort of setup or, or, or trying to set a fast time. Um, so, you know, you can't really read too much into the fact that they were close to Mark's time. And I think in the second day, Rins was even faster than Mark. But I, yeah, I was expecting those guys to be a bit further off, a bit more like, well, what, what the hell is this? Um, you know, I think I was, it, it's obviously not an ideal situation just because of Honda's predicament at the moment. But I think both of those guys had a, a really positive test. Yeah, I think for me, actually, I'd probably take Joao Mir as my surprise just for those reasons. But I also take it with the caveat that this time last year we said the same thing about Paul he went to the first round he looked pretty good and then it all fell apart so as it stands right now I thought Mir would struggle a bit more than he has but let's wait and see how Portimao and the first few rounds go David what about you what was your big surprise uh, I mean for me there's just no question is Fabio Di Antonio I mentioned it before why about why uh, the the fact that he now has a crew chief who can really help him uh, for him to finish I think sixth overall and he was consistently fast um he I mean uh, I think you said uh, well, I can't remember who said earlier you know it looks like maybe we can have all eight UKs on the podium 100% there there's now no doubt in my mind that all of them could get on the podium this year and uh, what about uh, disappointment for you then Adam uh, I'm not going to stay a disappointment Steve because I think for all the points we've made so far in the podcast uh, you can't really point a finger and say well that's very underwhelming for anybody uh, but I will say it looks fantastic if you look at the the classification. The MotoGP is still very, very strong, very tight, very unpredictable. Uh, I will say that the 
the, the increasing competitiveness of Ducati is is slightly worrying. We knew it would be a, a red series last year, but it's going to be even tougher, I think, for the other brands to break into that group this year. And David, what about you? Who? What was your disappointment from the Sepang test? My disappointment... I mean, it's going to sound a bit odd, but my disappointment was Honda. I thought that they would make more of a step. I actually think that what they've done is really positive. Um, but they are really, I mean, they're really, they've really gone a long way back to basics, uh, to, like I said, start all over again. They're really starting from scratch. Um, uh, I think that is going to be a disappointment for Mark Marquez and let's see what, so what, what that brings. And Neil, what about you? A uh, big disappointment. I mean, I could say Maverick Finale has only been third. Um, you know, we've expected him a bit higher. Um, you know, Luca Marini taking over the the, the mantle of Testum uh, world champion. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big blow for Maverick. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have to agree with Adam. You know, I think it is it is much too early. We, we can't be making sort of crazy judgments at this early stage of the preseason. You could say Yamaha, um, having their issues with qualifying, that could be that could be a disappointment, especially as things have been looking pretty rosy before that. Um, and yeah, I also share Adam's slight trepidation that this could be a, a year in which Ducati just have such a a crazy advantage over the rest that it's just a it's it's a bit silly because we've become quite accustomed to MotoGP being very open between the factories in the last couple of years, and that's been a great thing. Um, yeah, and I, I hope that's not the case this year. Uh, I think um, Yamaha's inability to qualify after uh, showing that they've got the top speed and a pretty decent race pace as well. I think that is a very good shout, Neil. Maybe one point as well, Dave, I want your opinion on this. Is Sepang is obviously a fantastic circuit to test at because of the variety of the layout and what it, what it presents to the teams and the bikes and the factories. But is it um, also frustrating when you're sitting there and, you know, the teams have a lot of work to do and then suddenly it pisses with rain um, and basically washes out an afternoon or a large phase of time that due to the testing restraints now in MotoGP, they just simply do not have the luxury of uh, of being able to seize time and opportunities to, to correct technical packages for a 21 race series. I mean, it, it just seems uh, seems very, I don't know, kind of... I want to make a gesture like putting your thumb under your chin, you know, that kind of quarter-hour gesture of having a knife to a throat. It seems all rather too intense. Um, I mean, we, yes, there's a two days in Portimao to come, which is another fantastic circuit, but also quite unique. And uh, the Sepang test, I just wonder, oh, I know they have the shakedown as well, but uh, I just do wonder whether, you know, we really need another preseason test. We used to be three. We used to go to Phillip Island quite regularly. Uh, maybe, maybe they do need more days. The restriction in testing is basically a concession to the satellite teams because, uh, you know, the satellite teams don't really need any testing and it costs them a lot of money and they don't get any money for it. The trade-off is basically they get, we're doing more racing and we're doing less testing. Um, I think that the problem with testing is that wherever you are, you're always going to be stuck with the possibility of weather. You know, the, the weather can always affect it. We're going to Portimao. Um, uh, it's likely to be lovely, but it could also rain there. Um, you know, it is just, it does, is, it's just sort of like sitting just off of the Atlantic, which uh, at any time of year can be, um, uh, can be a bit sort of, you know, vicious. So we shall see. I, uh, I mean, it, yes, it's a bit difficult for factories, but on the other hand, um not testing is also good because it it spices things up a little bit it sort of you know it, it does shake things up it makes it more difficult if you give factories a lot of time to test then basically the te the team or the factory with the most money will end up on top yeah i found it really tough whenever we went to the Hareth test for superbikes and the whole grid was there basically and all i was thinking was can we not just have a race because <laughs> testing costs so much for the teams and you get nothing back in return. But obviously in MotoGP, it's a little bit different to World Superbikes. At least you get the bit of TV coverage from it. But I don't want to add another test. I think especially whenever you've got already 21 events through the, through the season and the sprint races, I think we've got enough inventory of MotoGP to, uh, to not add a third test again. The one thing that a lot of people said in Sepang is that 21 races are just too many. Um, a lot of people um, 
every level, uh, with the exception of a few riders, uh, basically everyone was saying like 18 races is absolutely ideal. Uh, any more than that is just uh, it's just too much. 21 races though David does give us 21 weekends of the Paddock Notes show for Grand Prix weekends on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast so be sure to check that out for $10 a month you're able to get all the latest news from the MotoGP Paddock as it happens and uh, obviously Adam you'll be at the Portimao test in a few weeks time to be our man on the ground giving us the insight Neil's our man on the ground all the way through the season and uh, David you're pretty much all the way through the season as well but uh, for us on the Paddock Pass podcast we've got a lot of content to come between now and the opening round of the year David's got an interview with Wilco Zielenberg that'll be up on Patreon soon and we'll have that played out into the Paddockmas podcast in uh, future episodes and we also have it where we'll have lots of additional content that we're going to try and play out through the course of the year and uh, make sure to keep an eye on your Twitter feeds for that as well so check out at paddockpasspod and uh, drop us some feedback give us some questions we've still got a month to go to the start of the season but I think after the Sepang test we're all pretty much ready to go at this stage this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by The Liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street with over eight. No, I'm not going to use that one. I always use that one. I'll go for the grip diameters this time. Valentine's Valentine's readout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you love grips, you'll love Renthal. Thinking about putting your your hand around the diameter, aren't you, Steve, on Valentine's Day? That's it.